I still remember that terrible day on the broad stain, the sand, and the water. And how in that hell that we called Salva Bay we were butchered like lambs of the slaughter. Johnny Turkey was ready. He'd primed himself well. He showered us with bullets, then he rained us with shells. And in five minutes flat, he'd blown us all to hell. And he blew us right back to Australia. Got some sun coming through the window here. Probably look weird. Maybe I should go against here so it's less weird looking. What's that? Is that better? Not in the toilet, as some have said. Must just stipulate that. Wow. So shit's popping off, huh? Holy mackerel. Man, I knew they were going to take it hard, but I have to admit, I thought that once the cops showed up, that they'd back down. But then we saw what happened. And that's the thing to remember about this. The cops let them in. That's the important thing. This is not a... This is not a situation where some force just uh, proved too powerful for the state. Uh, where 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 the the mechanisms of power were were somehow overawed by human concentrated human effort. Now they let him in, and why they let him in is probably a variety of factors. A lot of it probably just being that because these are people that cops are not trained to dehumanize, they treated them like human beings, and so. You can't treat people like human beings if you're going to really uh, dis, uh, dissuade them from doing something they want to do. Like, if you really want some people to stop a bunch of very angry people from doing something they want to do, you have to disabuse them of it with violence. And you have to be willing to do that. And they weren't willing to do it. That's one explanation. And that's, I think, probably at a micro level part of it. Uh, but I think also, you know, there's the idea that the cops are essentially also rioting. They're not happy that Trump lost either. So them letting them in is sort of their way of, of, of contributing to the demonstration and the, to signaling their unhappiness. And then, of course, you can go full tinfoil hat and say, well, they did it so that this could happen. Because I have to say, if I was the deep state, whatever you want to define that as, if I was like the the elements within our government that are seeking to maintain uh, the current system uh, and are most aware of what that entails, as opposed to being uh, ideologically uh, entrapped by their own bullshit like Trump people are, something like this is ideal. You have an incident here that has disciplined both sides perfectly. Because for anyone on the left, the specter of this will be the thing that prevents it from ever being the time to say anything bad about any Democrat in office. Because any show of vulnerability will, will lead to these people just taking, taking power.
and also it disciplines against even asking for too much because do you want to do you really want them to go wild which if we did something too big they would do biden is going to get to point to these guys anytime there's any big ask for progressive legislation sure do you want these guys go do, do you really want to test them and also i've said before that we're going to see a intensification of surveillance and police authority to deal with you know the continuing immiseration i mean crime is going up as we said as i as people said at the beginning of this crime was going to go back up and it's up it's happening all over the country crime's up it's going to get worse because things keep getting worse and dissatisfaction is going to get bigger and some of it is going to actually be pointed somewhere towards the people responsible for this and the state's going to be very interested in uh creating a narrative that allows for uh, a a the culture at large to go along with massive uh increases in surveillance and police power and the specter of a mega uh coup is absolutely just a perfect uh a bloody shirt to wave whenever you want uh Whenever you're you're announcing the next you know round of, uh, of of panopticon surveillance overwhelming everything in the world, what the hell's going on? I'm getting something on this. What is that? Sub gift or use bits to get to the next level? Am I the only one seeing this? The hell is that? Very distracting. And you know the right gets to. Uh, they get to they get if they keep pushing they get to find out the limits of their uh, ability to get what they want and the majority will still be pissed and still be uh, activated but will have bet, have learned you know where the line is uh but the ones who aren't are going to go off there's going to be a good burst of stochastic violence 100% and every one of those incidents is going to be used the same way that uh fucking bush administration used every real or mostly made up incident of uh of muslim terror to justify whatever the fuck they wanted to do so honestly like this is such a perfect thing and the funny thing is is you can write a story where this is just the byproduct of of the culture that we have of a of a society what is going on with this does anyone know what's going on? Everyone's talking, and I'm very confused as to what is happening with these levels. Uh, I'm trying to ignore them. Shit. Uh, it's very distracting. Okay. Years, someone said American years of lead. Honestly, yes. But anyway, uh, you've created a society of spectacle where politics, where, where like the stakes of politics are grafted onto pure entertainment and we give politics the same passion we give to entertainment a country where the only time we generally riot is after our team wins or loses a big game if you give big game intensity to politics this is going to happen you could write the story where this is just a byproduct of that and then just coincidentally it's the one thing that will be most gift wrapped and perfect for the use of our uh, actual ruling class to maintain their dominance over us just like you could argue that 9-11 was the un inevitable result of our foreign policy and our, our pursuit of oil dominance through ideological uh, and guerrilla warfare. Uh, but you could also write a story where the reason this is, keeps happening in the same direction and that all these dominoes keep falling the same way is because there's some hands out there pushing them in that direction.
And uh, for me, it's a moot point because the, the reality is the same either way. And honestly, the, the recipe is the same. The boring, no matter how outlandish or banal you want to make your uh, explanation of reality, the, the remedy is, is very boringly uh, straightforward. Organizing the working class, or rather the work, so working class organizing itself, rediscovering itself, awakening from its slumber. That's the only thing that's going to beat this. No matter where it's coming from, no matter who you think is in, in charge, and also how seriously you take it. Like, to me, there's no more annoying and banal conversation than the one that has been had ever since Trump uh, uh, lost about how seriously we should take this. Is this, re is this a serious, is this a coup, is this a real serious thing? And, and, and it, it's such, such a stupid argument because it never really, it's, nobody ever wants to make an argument about what they think is going to happen. It has to be couched in, well, it's bad and you should feel bad about it. And to that I say, hey, let me accept every premise of every hysteric on the internet who says that this is the beginning of a fascist coup. What the fuck do you want me to do about it? And the answer seems to be feel anxious about it. Feeling anxiety is literally, the feeling of anxiety is, is like the emotional cattle prod that they strap to our nuts every day of our fucking lives to get them to do whatever we, they fucking want us to. Managing our anxiety is how they get us to be good fucking compliant neoliberal subjects. Our anxiety is, the, is the, the cultural manifestation of the coercive mechanisms of control. And you want me to feel more anxiety about something I can't do anything about? Because let's say this is phase one, and tomorrow the Joint Chiefs come up and say that because of the overwhelming demands of the American people, we are blocking the further uh, uh, certification of the votes. What the fuck are you going to do about it? I am asking, what are you going to do about it? Everyone who's saying, this is a big deal, we should care about this, uh, everyone who ever said this wasn't a coup needs to be accountable. Okay, congratulations. You're taking this moment where democracy dies to fucking settle online scores. It sounds to me like you're just having fun on the fucking computer. That's the thing. The proof is in the pudding for me. If you're still posting about this stuff and you think it's a coup, then you don't, really. You're lying to yourself and everybody else. And if it is a coup, and, and everyone who said it isn't is wrong, well, guess what? Come get me. Come fucking, come make me accountable for being wrong. Where are you going to do that? In the camps? If there's not going to be camps, then what are you going to do? If you're saying it'll basically just be the same thing and you're going to keep posting, well, then why the hell have you put so much of your emotion behind this thing that clearly doesn't matter and can't affect anything? I think the only interesting thing to see is how much the Republican Party coalesces around a position of, uh, of denunciation of their own supporters here. How much do they go to war with the, with the base? Because this had to happen. The Demo Republican Party had to discipline their base at some point. Now, that's what's so frustrating about the Republican Party. They have the correct attitude and uh, approach to their uh, base. And that is, they are terrified of them and do whatever they want. 
But the thing is, is that the base, because they're Republicans, all they want is the stupidest bullshit on earth. Specifically, it cannot be stressed enough that this is all happening. This unprecedented attack on our nation's electoral integrity and on the constitutional order and the peaceful transfer of power is happening on behalf of a fucking game show host and nothing else. There is no, there's no thing these people are after. They want Trump. That is what got, has gotten them to break through the doors. And I would argue the reason they're allowed to do this is because all they want is Trump. If they wanted something more than Trump, if they wanted something that could actually challenge established power and could actually energize a group of people beyond the zo- those who have basically brainwashed themselves with television, basically poured fucking in the internet, poured bleach on their own frontal lobes, courtesy of their self-narcanization online and, on, and watching fucking cable news, None of it, no, like if they're rebellion, I'm sorry, but unless you are brainwashed, it's not going to happen. Now, they could take over the party, depending on how this thing whole breaks down, but they're not there yet. Like if people have said, like if this was a left wing protest, it never would have happened. And it's not necessarily because they're bigger pussies. It's because they would have been met with much harsher force, much more significant pushback from authority, which would have made most of them realize, do I really want to get my head caved in today? And say no. And then they'd stop and they'd go home. And only the hardest core would stay to fight the cops. What you had here was at no point did these guys get anything other than a few haphazardly sprayed mists of, uh, of pepper spray. And as soon as they realized, oh, pepper spray is not that bad, and that nothing else was going to happen, and they were literally opening the fucking doors for them, why not march in? But they're willing to do this for fucking Donald Trump, for the personal fix, the personal, uh, just the the personal ego trip of an insane man, just a, 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 a psychic identification with the point of view, essentially. They've taken celebrity culture to its ultimate conclusion. This is essentially the end of Day of the Locust by Nathaniel West, if anyone has read that book where the downtrodden, uh, starstruck losers of Hollywood burn the whole place down. Well, they're burning down Washington on behalf of their, their appointed God King uh, because, because in this country, that, that's the only thing that can stir passions. No one believes anything can change. No one really thinks that things can get better or different in this country. They think that we are on a trajectory that is set by human nature or God or the Constitution, and there's nothing to be done about it. And in that world, the only thing that's going to be able to reliably politically mobilize people is going to be a purely spectacular politics of, uh, of orgone release. And that is what Trump has given us. And now the thing is, is that because it has a limited appeal, but it is so totalizing in its appeal, we have a situation where the system has no longer has use for Trump or Trumpism. It got like the Republican Party got what it wanted. It got tax cuts uh, and it got a, a federal judiciary in their pocket for the next hundred years, up to and including an unbreakable 6-3 majority in the Supreme Court. They got what they wanted. Now it's just about his personal ego. And the whole point of a political party is that you go beyond the personal desires of any one person within the structure. Like, that's the, that's the old kingly model. And, like, that sort of brain-dead populism will create a royal figure. It has to, because it cannot... It's, it's, a, it's a rejection of politics. 
It rejects the notion that anything is being negotiated. It's totalizing. And so only a totalizing vision is going to get people to fucking fight like that. At least fight, uh, at least risk that. But once again, that's the only thing. It's not because they're stronger or smarter or more, or more brave. It's because the state will allow that. It will allow those. But the thing is, it's a tantrum, and eventually they have to let the tantrum uh, uh, go out. Like, essentially, that's how those uh, Democratic, go uh, Democratic governors and mayors, especially this last summer during the George Floyd uh, uprising, that's how they treated their base, essentially. By saying they're there, and they just let them tucker themselves out. And that's what we're doing here. It's just bigger and more dramatic, and it's going farther because it's a bunch of fucking white men, mostly, demanding that Trump be allowed to be president forever. He's not, they're not challenging any state prerogatives. They're not challenging any mechanisms of power. They don't represent any movement beyond their own uh, fandom, basically. It's essentially a con out of control. Like, that's essentially Comic-Con on, uh, uh, on crack right now in D.C. It's freaking Comic-Con on crack. And that's why they're allowed to do it. But they're also going to have to tucker themselves out. Most of them will go home, but a few of them are going to get violent. And they're going to be encouraged to get more violent uh, by the results they saw. And guess what? That's to everybody's advantage, too. That's good for Democrats. Every piece of violence by a Republican gets to be a political weapon and gets to justify further repression and gets to call further repression uh, uh, black social... Uh, like We get to call that justice for black lives because it's now disproportionately going against white people. Like That's, that's the kind of demon, demonic trick you could play with that. So they're happy with it. Republicans are happy because they know... That if it's ever really close, if any election is really, really close, like this election wasn't really that close, honestly. It was only the commitment of Trump and, and the, the para-reality he's able to create around everything he says that is then affirmed by people who listen to him. Uh, it wasn't that close. A real close race, they know they have it. They have it. And every, and every piece of right-wing violence further re uh, reinforces their command of the space in the event of a real political conflict. That they could pull some fucking redeemer shit, uh, uh, like the Reconstruction governments of the uh, 1880s and 90s. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's wild. It's wild and wacky stuff. Uh, it is very dispiriting to not to just think of how. Uh, of how much harder it is to get anywhere near that kind of uh, threat to just, you know, established patterns of power and behavior from the left. But that's just because the they're actually serious when they go against the left. But a big part of it is, is that there's no thing that gets people, that gets enough people, the way that Trump does. And that's because it can't be, because it's not spectacle, because it's material reality. It has to be built from the ground up of articulating experience, not being brought from the top down in the form of just uh, fucking Madison Avenue brainwashing. That's the only thing that'll do it.
That's the only thing they'll do it. And if it's and if this is just more neoliberalism with its Janus face and it's it, it's pulling off like a soft internal gladio, or it is the first uh, the first winding of a gear that leads to a fascist seizure of power, some sort of uh, inside out auto coup where like the 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 protesters like meld with the police and then and then essentially just arrest democratic lawmakers and shit? The answer is the same. I certainly will not try to do any predicting because if I was not swearing that shit off before now, I sure as hell wouldn't do it now. Holy shit. Beyond saying that I do think that Joe Biden will, in fact, be inaugurated, although I do think that Inauguration Day is going to be very interesting, my guess, this is as far as I want to get, is that it, they bristle that place and that there's, like, essentially a military occupation of Washington, D.C. to prevent a, re, a reoccurrence, would be my assumption. I didn't say I moved to Oregon. What the hell is wrong with you people? I didn't say that. Weirdo. I'm not going to Oregon. What is wrong with you people? I'm being gaslit by these people. I did not say I'm moving to Oregon. What the fuck are you talking about? Am I being tr am I being trolled by the crowd again? God damn it! I'm being trolled. Fuck. I try I try to do a good stream for the people, and then they go and troll me like this. I don't know why I put up with it, honestly. I don't know why I put up with it. Okay, so now that we've talked about that, let's talk about, we'll watch the numbers just drop here. Let's talk about our last section of the Republic for which it stands. Chapters, I believe, 9 through 12. Uh, this is really good stuff, this stuff, and I want to go through them kind of chapter by chapter because there's a lot of good... Uh, stuff to point out in here. Uh, we start with, hilariously, the election of 1876, in which the disputed uh, votes uh, led to a, a constitutional crisis and a essentially a backroom deal between the Democrats and Republicans to allow the Republicans to keep the presidency in exchange for the end of military occupation and reconstruction in the South. And uh, this is funny because Ted Cruz was trying to, during his nerd-ass attempt to, co to toady to the Trump supporters by calling for a... Uh, uh, calling for a, a uh, commission to, like, rule on voter fraud, that it was him invoking the... Uh, this case, because that's what they did. They ended up establishing a, a bipartisan commission where they basically just made a deal behind closed doors. Uh, and then they, there was a constitutional amendment that actually ended that possibility because they saw how bad it was. So once again, Ted Cruz being an oaf and a dope and a dumbass, but we knew that. Um, so 
there was a lot of there wasn't a lot of violence around that election. There was like talk of mobilization of troops and stuff. Um, I think I guess George McClellan fucking like wanted to form a militia to march on Washington to make Tilden president. He's like the Michael Flynn of 1876. But nobody nobody uh, ransacked the White House. I can say that. So, so that's how uh, that's how things are going since then. So then he talks about the uh, the biggest eruption of coordinated working class uh, mobile uh, militancy until that point in American history, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, which saw the almost the, the kind of ter pain, painfully um, uh, symbolic uh, sight of troops being pulled out of the Reconstruction South to abandon freed people to the ravages of the Klan and the Red Shirts to go and uh, help put down the strike in the North. Uh, and it was huge it was violent it was not coordinated very well because it was largely spontaneous and there was only a rudimentary working class political movement in america at that point like there was the working men's association there was the international like uh uh yeah the working men's association was one the knights of labor it was it was still a very uh incohate movement uh but they were all caught by surprise just like the, all of the bickering parties in uh, Tsarist Russia were caught surprised by 1905. Like, you had currents being developed, but it took an event to bring about a, a reckoning. In, the, in this case, it was the fact that this depression had, uh, had pinched the profits of the railroad companies, uh, but they didn't want to stop giving dividends to stockholders because... They were essentially running Ponzi schemes and needed new investment income to keep themselves up. So they had, to, since profits were going down, the only place that they, and competition was reducing profits also, the only place they could get profits was, what a shock, labor costs by cutting, uh, by cutting wages and increasing uh, hours. At a time when everybody was suffering because of the Depression. And... People just realized, oh, this is where the line is. And it came from no ideological battle, really, no not a lot of not a lot of posting. It came from experience. The experience of working near a railroad, uh being having the railroad dominate your life, which was something that uh, the Western farmers could also commiserate on because they were held hostage by railroad uh freight rates. That was the margin of whether or not they ate in the winter. And the, the, it was predictably defeated because it was, no one was really planning it, and the states eventually all agreed that, oh yeah, no, this is what we're here for. This is why the, the state exists, to suppress this sort of thing. Uh, but it led to uh, the, a lot of the railroads backing down because they found, okay, this is the limit. Okay, good to know. Uh, so that was chapter nine, uh, chapter 10, 
he talks a lot about uh, something that is very boring, but important to understand uh, 19th century politics, which was uh, civil service reform. It was the end of the spoil system. And that ended up being one of the only real issues that divided the parties, because they basically all agreed to the same laissez-faire politics to one degree or another, and then they were voters were sorted by geography. If you were, and also religion, well, no, basically geography, uh, because if you were a Catholic in America, you were probably lived in a city, and you were a laborer, and you were a Democrat. If you were a white Southerner, you were a Democrat. If you were a uh, small-holding Protestant Northerner, which is the mean Northerner, you were a Republican. If you were a black Southerner, you were a Republican. Although that mattered less and less as Reconstruction governments failed to be able to defend themselves. It's not a coup. Settle the fuck down. What do you want me to do? Just yell about how it's a coup? Does that help you? If it's a coup, shouldn't you be out in the streets like with your fellow militiamen gathering your garrisons? You better have some fucking, uh, better have some garrisons to muster. Uh, and the funny thing about civil service reform is, is it's sold in history as this is the good guys, the good, the good, uh, moral politicians driving out the crooks. Well, of course not. It's, it's of course about uh, wringing out the ability of working class people to get any percentage of, uh, of economic growth because they were locked out of capital, but they did have their votes, which means they could pry something out of the machine. But private property regime is premised on the notion that you can't do that. That was the thing that the Constitution was designed to prevent. Um, and the way that the fucking Tammany's and, and, and other machines were able to distribute jobs to Catholics and then give them political power in exchange for it? No, no, that just simply isn't done. And that is why, where a lot of the anti-Catholic sentiment uh, of Northern Republicans came from. Uh, and so the fight over uh, civil service reform is really a fight over democracy in a way. And the rational civil service that we eventually got does not is still influenced by money. It's still influenced by authority, by outside uh, interests. But they're purely monetary. It's purely capital. It's no longer anybody who is accountable to anyone you would call people, who are not you know a concentrated economic interest the way the capital is. And he also talks about the other sort of, the, the, the bad side of, uh, of emerging working class mobilization uh, is anti-Chinese sentiment in California because the Chinese were seen as, as essentially slave labor imported directly to compete with them. And because of racism and racial division and, and cultural separation that makes it harder to get to a point of empathy that allows you to, you know, digest politics at that level. Uh, it, it led to just a, a wholesale demonization of the Chinese. Uh, and that is the populist, that's like the fate, that's one, that's one facet of the face of American populism, is it is a defense of 
labor, free labor or for, uh, property from comp from un uh, from unfree competition. Uh, and it's something that the political parties had to deal with when um, when balancing powers against one another. But as usual, you know, the real, the real heart of the, of the, of the anti-Chinese sentiment, it really did come from fear of being economically displaced. And it could have been channeled elsewhere. It's just, uh, racism is so good, it's so useful that it's, that cha political channels for it open up when it emerges. It's, it's, it's facilitated. It's not, it's not, uh, uh, challenged and uh, undermined at every fucking point. I wanted to get some other stuff in here. Talked about uh, convict leasing and the return of servile labor in the South because if you aren't going to turn people into citizens, if they can't be coerced by a common social milieu, then they have to be externally forced. And uh, when you've got high labor intensity crop system like, like cotton in the South, uh, the thing is predicated almost on, on uh, self-exploitation at least. And uh, they talk about the Indian Wars, how there was just no, uh, there's really nothing that the natives could really do to avoid getting their stuff just took because there was money to be made in it. And uh, there was always this kind of sad, tragic, like shrug of the shoulders about Indian policy among all of the, the good-hearted reformers and the ex-abolitionists. It's like, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do? And the fact is, is that, you know, we were going to, unless something stopped us, we were going to take it all because you only stop if someone stops you. That's, that's, that's the unchecked imperial engine. Something has to stop you. And that we couldn't be stopped because our, our control of our domination of the landscape. Uh, then in the last chapter, uh, he goes into the intellectual history stuff that I think is really strong in this book and a nice through line uh, throughout it to, you know, kind of understand how all these, you know, social, all this social ferment is being turned into like political wisdom. Uh, and he talks about this Daniel, this Dean Howells guy and all this. And he talks about how, like, as I said on the stream yesterday, uh, you, you're seeing this Kuhnian shift. Uh, in, in the social sciences, away from laissez-faire social Darwinism towards, uh, like, 
progressive social policy and the social gospel to, to come with it out of the Protestant tradition. And uh, one of the things that emerge from this ferment is an attempt to like recap, reaffirm capitalism in the face of all of the evidence of its failures uh, by making it just. And one of those ideas was Georgism, which was uh, created by an economist named Henry George, who was uh, a classic American crank in the best tradition. Uh, one of our better cranks, I think. Uh, and he was a guy who uh, saw the horrors of, of, of the accumulating unfreedom and misery of America in this supposed land of total uh, bounty. Um, it's because we have taken land, which is by definition common, and given it to people. And his, he basically diagnosed land ownership and specifically rent on unimproved un, um, land as the, the stake in the heart of civilization, as, as where all uh, injustice flows. And he does this by essentially redefining capital to exclude raw materials and land. And why he does that is essentially so that everything can flow from that presumption. All of this stuff rose from that presumption. And the thing is, if you go from that assumption, he has a very persuasive case. And he gained a lot of influence and power. Power. Uh, they haven't gotten to it in the book yet, but he ran for mayor of uh, New York on a fusion socialist ticket, like a Labor Party ticket, uh, against a Tammany Hall stalwart and Republican Theodore Roosevelt. And... Uh, both George and Roosevelt lost to the Tammany hack, which just goes to show that, you know, whatever ideas and charisma you got, it's still New York, baby, and somebody's got to pay the fucking garbage man. Uh, and so his proposal was, yes, a single tax. No tax on anything except land. And that that would remove speculation from the economy, remove concentration. And it's a classic American bit of crankery where he's trying to solve an equation by essentially making up his own math because he wants to avoid the confrontation. He wants to avoid the reality of class conflict because he's an American. He doesn't see the necessity because in these big wide open spaces you can convince yourself that maybe we can all get along. And the American expression of that, one of them is Georgism. This idea was, well, the, the, the sheer reality of this pitch, the sheer truth, because the essential argument is, this is so obviously true that if enough people believe it, we will act like it's true, and that will make us do it, and that will reduce all of the capital accumulation, and it will be a nonviolent war of ideas that is won over time through application of our minds and our passions. And that's in opposition to the Marxist notion that, no, no, we're going to win because there will become a time where there is a pivotal confrontation between capital and labor, and labor's superior numbers and organization will, win, will make it win, will win in the battle. That, and it, it is the numbers, it is people motivated by shared material 
drive towards freedom that will move them towards victory. It will not be that you eventually change people's minds. That's the idea, is that you just have to convince them. If enough people understand this, both capitalists and workers will see the truth of it and will want to do it. No one will act against their economic self-interest, and if they do, there will not be enough of them to overawe the, the democracy of dollars. And that is why I think that Georgism is uh, very much in a tradition that we now see with MMT. Now, once again, MMT is, I think, correct in most of the things it claims to do. But beyond that, it seems to think that because this is true, you can convince enough people of that, and by convincing them, we will act like it's true and therefore make capitalism humane without conflict. I think it's the same impulse that drove Georgism. Now, that doesn't mean it isn't true or useful. I'm just saying that the messianic heart of it, I think, is the same as it is with the Georgists. It's an idea that the truth of this is so un undeniable that if enough people know it, it will convert them. As if ideas can, in the main, I mean, beyond individual uh, people, in the main, demographically, go against material interests. They won't. So, that's Henry George. Also, did not like Chinese people. Oh, this is one thing I wanted to actually read. This is, uh, this, I just, to any, any young, nervous denizen of the internet, uh, if any of this sounds familiar, please let me know. He's talking about this guy, uh, Howells, who was essentially, uh, He's the kind of guy we don't have anymore, like a Gore Vidal, like a, a public intellectual who like writes novels and reviews and stuff. I guess the closest thing we have now would be podcasters. Howells agonized over the industrial United States that greeted him on his return for quite personal as well as intellectual and moral reasons. In 1880, Howells' 16-year-old daughter, Winnie, vibrant, charming, attractive, and the apple of her father's eye, had fallen ill in a way so many Gilded Age women and men fell ill. She quite suddenly could not cross a room unaided. She had to drop out of school. Winnie became sick the same year that George Miller Beard published American Nervousness. American Nervousness. He, you could call it anxiety, maybe. He created a new world, new word, neurasthenia, to describe what he thought was a new phenomenon. Lack of nervous force. Its symptoms were baffling and various, as a desire for excitement and stimulation, coupled with fears that ranged from fears of being alone to fears of being afraid to fear of everything. Charlotte per Perkins Gilman, whose story, The Yellow Wallpaper, captured the disease, was also its victim. It consisted, she wrote in her autobiography, of every painful sensation, shame, fear, remorse, a blind oppressive confusion, utter weakness, a steady brain ache that fills the conscious mind with crowding image of distress. The end and damning result, the end and defining result was the paralysis of the will that afflicted Winnie. The cause, doctors agreed, was modern life itself. 
It's barrage of information, noise, and distraction. It's luxuries, and it's constant demand. It unmanned men and defeminized women, leaving both men and women over-civilized. Nervous, artificial, weak, and detached from real emotion and vital experience. The introspection of reform Reformation Protestantism, once devoted to monitoring the soul and the chances of salvation, had turned morbid and transmuted into mere self-obsession. Gilman noted the significant aspect of her own case. She was, in effect, allergic to the home. Although she loved her husband and child, she saw the stark fact that I was well while away and sick while at home. I don't know. I don't know if that rings any bells for anybody. I don't know if that sounds like anyone you know or are. But the one thing I wanted to say about, uh, oh, right, and then we got the election of 1884 when the James G. Blaine, the man from Maine, the symbol, one of the symbols of uh, post-war corruption, ran for president against uh, Grover, the hangman of Buffalo, Cleveland. And uh, it's important to note that the whole issue basically boiled down to corruption because Blaine was crooked. And uh, essentially Cleveland was more discreet, so he wasn't, but he was indiscreet sexually uh, he essentially admitted that he had fathered a child out of wedlock who he had paid for the education of, which led to the campaign slogan of the Republicans, Mama, where's my pa? So it was this battle of like personal virtue versus public, uh, public virtue, but nobody was disagreeing with any of the top-level stuff. Everybody was for fucking uh, strong money. Everybody was against strikes and working-class organization. Everybody was mildly anti-Chinese, uh, and they were all essentially dragging their feet towards civil service reform. It was sort of accepted that by that point, the Garfield assassination really set the seal that, okay, this is going to happen, and it, it took them a long time. It, it, they pulled that Band-Aid off real slow, but uh, it's because they had to you know, create sink, uh, offload uh, uh, escape vessels for everybody. Uh, but then uh, Blaine was killed, not by his corruption, but most likely because he was accused of being in the same room with a Protestant clergyman who said that the Democratic Party stood for rum, Romanism, and rebellion, which was not what uh, the Irish Catholics of New York wanted to hear. Not that Republicans ever did terribly well with the Irish Catholics, but there were a good number of them who could have been persuaded to vote for uh, a New York, or uh, uh, could be uh, persuaded to vote for an open-handed Republican, a guy who was willing to, you know, uh, who was willing to grease the wheels, but that didn't go over well, because it reminded them, oh yeah, those fucking, uh, those cabbage eaters fucking hate us, those, those fucking Protestant squareheads, they hate us. Rum as in alcohol, because, because good Protestant northerners were, were temperance men. 
It was the drunken Posada Germans and Irish who drank. Romanism for the Catholic Church, and then, of course, rebellion for the Civil War, which, yes, they had done. And it is honestly kind of crazy that we let that party still exist after they did the Civil War. One of many things that probably should not have been allowed to have happened. So I think for next week we're going to read a good chunk because this goes very quickly. I'm not that worried about not having enough. We're going to finish the second half of the second part. So from Dying for Progress. Ah, Dying for Progress. Chapter 13 to The Poetry of a Pound of Steel, Chapter 18. And then I think next week we'll do the last part and that'll be it. So I think we're seeing, as we read the book, you know, the uh, the machine, the Leviathan of capitalism sort of stitch itself together out of the pieces of the post-war uh, uh, ferment. And the key thing was always bribery. At the end of the day, it was bribery. That was what set the, that's what set the terms for uh, where where uh, the government was seeking its actual uh, agenda from, where it's seeking its real, um, uh, its real validation. Not from voters, but from people with money. Because people had money more, than, people had more money, people had more paper money after the Civil War than they'd ever had before because the government had been throwing around money to build the war machine. And that's what does it. This is an MMT thing, and the MMTers are right. The U.S., when the U.S. has said, hey, we, get, need to, we need to build an economy like for a war, like the Civil War or World War II, we just do it. We just make the money up. And then, we, then the uh, economic activity follows from the money. They're 100% correct about that. That's how that works. But where that money goes, whose hand it goes into, that is, all, that is, not, uh, that is very much controlled. That's that the, the hands it's already in are the ones guiding it, and they make sure that it accumulates to where it has always been. And then the more they have, the more they can buy things with. They were able to buy the continent from. They were able to buy the continent from us, because they had essentially been places where money and paper had been held in the process of building an, an industrial war economy, and then a railroad economy after that. So if you imagine, as I am, an alternative Civil War, post-war era, the key thing is what, what dominoes would have to fall to give, to give electoral and political like self-actualization to the freed slaves as soon as possible, uh, at, uh, the urban working class, and, and northern smallholders. And I don't think it's impossible, but man... It'd be very unlikely. But once again, it's not an either-or question. It's not a yes-or-no question. It's a deal where just a little bit more makes things a little better over time, you know, and just moves things in one direction rather than another. I think it's there. I've been thinking more about how I would actually want to, like, structure a counter-narrative of Reconstruction. 
And I was saying, you know, Lincoln being assassinated, that'd be a good place to put it. But honestly, I would want it to move it a little bit earlier. And it is to, to start with Benjamin Butler, uh, who I talked about, the, uh, the conservative, doe-face Democrat turned radical Republican, who was one of the first generals to uh, free slaves that they encountered in occupying the South and occupied New Orleans, and became a radical Republican legislator after the war. Wildly corrupt, but also a genuine populist who became a Greenback Party candidate, uh, a successful governor, and then a candidate for president. He was offered the vice presidential slot before they gave it to Johnson. And right there, even if Lincoln still dies uh, in April of 1865, that could hugely affect things for the better. But also, what if Butler's vice president, and then, you know, butterfly wings fly because of that, and then Lincoln is not assassinated because it was a close-run thing. He doesn't decide to go to the fucking uh, show that night. He says, fuck it. Wait, maybe, maybe, maybe Benjamin Butler shows up with, like, a keg, and they decide to get drunk, and then the, and they don't go to the theater, and then somebody from, like, the Surratt house uh, drops a dime on him, and then they all get arrested, and it's just a footnote in history. But then, I would imagine, I still think that to get anywhere good, Lincoln needs to die and be a martyr for America. But if he's a martyr in like 1866 or 1867, and then Butler becomes president, Katie, bar the door. All right, so I'm going to wrap up here in a second. While we've been talking, have they declared a MAGA government in Washington? Have they seized the uh, the Constitution and started adding amendments about, like, buck hunting? Is everybody go home? What's going on? Are they still in the Capitol building? Trump died? Oh my god. I could see them, like, dosing him, honestly, right now. I could see them heart attack gunning Trump right now, because you know they're actually, like, sitting him down. He had to give that fucking thing today where he said, look, I know they stole it, I know it's outrageous, I know they literally just t took your right to vote from you and shat all over it. We all know that's true, but you gotta go home. That's, that's the, that's why this thing has to break against the rocks. It cannot, uh, correct itself, because Trump cannot correct himself. Because for him to actually do something about this, he would have to say, look, I didn't actually win. I was wrong. He would have to say that. He cannot start with, look, this is a stolen election, but you should just accept that. He can say that because it's all fantasy to him. These people have taken it seriously. And then I'm hearing that uh, the vice president authorized uh, the National Guard, not Trump. Did they 25th Amendment his ass? Did he get, did he get cooed? <coughs> Are they sticking him in a fucking, uh, in like a, a back of a car, like Patrice Lumumba? What's going on? <coughs> Is he going to get DM'd? Is he going to get DM'd by the Joint Chiefs and Mike Pence? Is that going to happen? 
is Mike Pence going to be our big min? It was big min, right? Who did the who did the sixty three coup? Yeah, men. Yeah, big men. I was correct. I thought so. I know my Vietnam. So they 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 coo did they coo him? That'd be very funny. I heard he unfollowed Trump and then refollowed him. I think we could say safely that Mike Mike Pence will not be the 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 president. I mean, I think we all knew that Mike Pence and Kamala Harris are very similar in that they will never be president. Kamala Harris's only hope is that Biden dies in office, and these guys don't die anymore. They've invented some sort of adrenochrome suppository that is like long lasting. They will not die. Biden will be a gibbering skeleton at age 96 and he will still be alive. So she, she, he's not going to die in office. He's not going to resign. She's not going to win a primary. And if she did get win a general, she would get her fucking ass killed. And then Pence is the same way. Pence has zero chance to ever be president. He will be the traitor's traitor. He is going to be hounded for this. Honestly, it is pretty, it's pretty fitting because I could see a thing where Pence becomes the person that they hate more than any other person in the world. Where way more than any Democrat who they sort of at, at essentially level, they have to be like, well, you won, you know, you always end up putting, venting your, your real rage on the person on your side who betrayed you. The, the, the traitor is always hated more than the enemy. So, uh. I could see Pence being the focus of their rage, like a guy getting pipe bombs in the mail every other week. And, well, it's a tragic thing that it's come to that. If that occurs, it's not necessarily, I don't know, I mean, parody in the game, it's, it's, it's chickens going home to roost. Honestly, it's more like Pence's best chance, as someone points out in the comments, run as a Democrat as the guy who stopped Trump from doing a coup. How about that? No, no, no. There's some predictions that I that are easy. P Pence cannot be president. That those ones aren't that hard. I gotta say, man, if the my pillow guy was a little more charismatic, and if he had run for office yet, I don't know. I guess if he doesn't, he could go straight for the my pillow guy. It's just the thing about my pillow guy is that he doesn't have Trump's charisma, and that's a problem. He has. The, the regular guy, famous guy thing that they love. Like, he is a famous person who they think of as themselves, and that's what they really want. But he doesn't have the, the fucking, he doesn't have the showmanship. And that's my only, that's why if only John Taffer were more famous among the MAGA people, it would be John Taffer. The guy's got, he's another reality show guy who's, who fucking pops on TV. I mean, I saw him give a speech at an Americans for Prosperity convention. This is one of the first things I did as a as a tweeter slash journalist. Me and Brian Quimby from Street Fight, this was before Chapo started, went to Columbus, Ohio to see John Taffer speak along with a bunch of the presidential candidates. Not Trump, but Jeb was there. Bobby Jindal was there. Um, fuck, a couple more losers, but those two for sure. Uh, and I remember I saw, I saw Jeb speak and wow, nothing, just stuffed shirt, just absolute zero. Bobby Jindal also, P 
pipsqueak. Just imagining that those guys ever thought they were going to stand to Trump is astounding. But then fucking Taffer comes out, and he just explodes on these people. And he essentially demands that they all swear a blood oath to defend small business because it is the lifeblood and heart of America. And of course, small business is the closest thing we have to the old small holding fantasy, the yeoman fantasy that is the heart of American popular freedom. Praffer would be the perfect encapsulation of that. He would be the perfect person to express that truth. Sadly, he's too niche of a figure. If Bar Rescue had been the biggest show on network television in the, in the aughts, then he we honestly had a chance. And that's what makes this whole thing so difficult to even think about, is that Trumpism is going to sh- splinter because there's no one to take the fucking torch from him. Don Jr. wants it, but he can't do it. Maybe it'll be Don Jr., but if it's Don Jr., it's going to be a much reduced Trumpism. Because, as I said at the beginning of the show, we're going to see a confrontation that had to come between the party apparatus with its long-term goals and its commitment to the the standing system because it benefits capitalism uh, and the wild, lumpen uh, id that has been indulged but never given... But that's because it could be indulged. It can't be indulged anymore. The stock boys won't allow it to be indulged anymore. Playtime is over. So how does this breakup happen? Uh, That is the question. And what you could see is, in a very short period of time, the Republican Party taken over by an explicit, ideologically committed Trumpist faction that turns Q into reality from the inside of the party. But that will take time. It's not going to happen overnight. It would take several election cycles, but that would be the project. Or people get, they kind of get over, like Biden becomes president and it's not as bad as they thought it would be and the comforts of their home and the distractions of their life and maybe, hey, maybe, oh, we got a vaccine, now Fuddruckers is open. You know, like maybe, just maybe, they start going home. And the, the fringe are left and they form their own party that becomes like this thorn in the side of America body politic. But but it's one that will it'll be there for the profit of both parties and both branches of the ruling elite, so it's not going anywhere. But that'll be that'll be the contest. My hunch is that most of these people go home. Because like for right now it's just that they cannot psychically imagine a world where Biden is president. But once it's here and their lives are the same, it's going to take the wind out of some sails. Not everybody. Not anywhere close. I think we're, I mean, if we had any question about whether there's going to be a rise in stochastic violence relative to, uh, related to politics, I think this should really throw that one out the window. I think that's going to happen for sure. What degree it's going to be real and what degree it is going to be literally coordinated with government agencies, Gladio style, that might be the only real question. But we are definitely living. We are definitely living in interesting times, which you're not supposed to do, but what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? For God's sake, I just want to grill. Peace out.